Transistor. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're talking to eccentric explorer Colonel John Blashford Snell. Forget Harrison Ford... JBS is a real-life Raiders of the Lost Ark figure. Wearing his Victorian pith helmet, he's never happier than when he finds himself astride an elephant in India or paddling a dugout canoe in the South American rainforest or shooting rapids in the crocodile-infested waters of the Nile. During his military career and beyond, he spent 60 years mounting numerous scientific expeditions while encouraging young people to reach out for fresh horizons. His many stories are legendary. We caught up with him at his home in Dorset in the south of England and persuaded him to share a couple of his experiences. John, welcome to our podcast. You spent your early army career launching adventure training schemes and organising all kinds of military scientific expeditions. The navigation of the Blue Nile in 1968 was the first of these to receive global recognition. How did that come about? The army then started adventure training as a set programme. And whilst this was going on, uh, I took several expeditions to Ethiopia, and on each one we met His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. He was a remarkable man. Very luckily, my godfather had known him and had helped to look after him when he was exiled to Britain during the war. So when I was looking for some really exciting place where not many people had been, my godfather wrote to Haile Selassie and asked if I could come to his country and do something useful. Amazingly, a reply came back and said, yes, send your godson out here with these cadets. We do our utmost to provide a good task. The Natural History Museum in London were very eager to get specimens of various creatures, ranging from bats, beetles, quite large animals, in particular a Nile crocodile, and one or two other things. So... We formed up these expeditions that went out. And on the very last one, Haile Selassie had us all to an audience. And uh, that was quite remarkable because I said to the minister of court, when you go to meet an emperor, what is the protocol? And he said, well, it's quite simple. When you enter the throne room, and there's a 50-yard red carpet. And you must walk singly up the red carpet and you bow three times as you go up, once at the door, once halfway up the carpet, finally just in front of the throne, at which point His Imperial Majesty may shake hands with you and will probably speak to you in French. And then when you come to leave the presence of so great a person, you're required to walk backwards. You must never turn your back on him. So you walk backwards down the carpet, bowing three times in reverse. And I thought, well, that's not too difficult for well-drilled cadets. And he said, yes, there are one or two hazards you've got to watch out for. And I discovered that Haile Selassie was an animal lover. And in the throne room, he kept an ever-shifting population of lions. So the chances of tripping over a ruddy lion and getting eaten for your pains was really quite high. So we got to the throne room, all 60 cadets. And one by one, we marched in bowing. But I was very lucky because I'd asked the minister of the court how we were to avoid the lions. And he said, well, it's quite simple. He said, when you bow to the emperor, you must cast yourselves down low and you press your forehead upon the carpet. I said, hey, hey, steady, you know, we're British. We don't normally do that sort of thing. I mean, a a simple bow is usually all that's required. Oh, no, he said, I'm not suggesting you be obsequious, 
But if you look between your legs when you're bowing, you will see the lions that are lurking behind you. So all 60 cadets got in and out without incident. And in fact, he even lent us a lion later on to take me on the marketplace, but that's another story. And as I came to shake hands with him at the end and say goodbye, he said, I do hope you'll come back and do more work in my country. I said, what would you like us to do? And he said, I'd like you to explore my Blue Nile. Well, that was rather like asking an average hill walker to climb Everest. I'd seen the Blue Nile looking down on it from a bridge. I didn't really think one could take on a challenge like that lightheartedly, but I muttered something, hoping it sounded polite, and bowed my way out. I returned to England, and a little time later, a letter reached the government from Haile Selassie saying he wanted his Blue Nile explored. It had not been fully explored at that point, and in fact, no one had really survived going through it. And it was a mile deep gorge full of crocodiles and everything else. He pointed out that he'd spoken to me about it and indicated that on behalf of the government, I had accepted to doing it. This wasn't quite true, but I was summoned by my general, who was a, a rather splendid, sort of prickly little man, a nice chap, but he wasn't one you argued with. He said, we've had a letter from His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie, King of Kings, chosen lion of the tribe of Judah, and also, by the way, a field marshal in the British Army. He wants his Blue Nile explored, and I gather you think you can do it. I said, well, sir, it's not quite that. I said, first of all, sir, it's, it's full of hippos. There are lots of very, very dangerous crocodiles. There are bandits galore, and the gorge through which it runs is a mile deep and is, is subject to landslides containing radioactive gas. He looked to me in the eye and he said, you're being very negative. <laughs> uh, I said, well, sir, no, he said, I don't like negative officers. I looked into this. And I think it's just the sort of thing we need for the morale of the army. And it would be a good thing to do it. We get in the papers. Yes, sir. I said, right, he said, we'll have a committee to run it. I shall be chairman and you will be secretary. I see no need for anyone else. And so the Blue Nile expedition was born. And of course, it did take an awful lot of preparation. and It did produce a huge amount of publicity for the army. Luckily, most of us got through. Sadly, we did lose one soldier who was drowned while crossing a tributary, not on the main river. But the enormous amount of scientific knowledge came out which was of value to Ethiopia. The only real problem was that we did run into some of the bandits that we'd been warned about. But very luckily, being a military expedition, we were armed. And so we had two quite interesting gunfights with these chaps and managed to beat a retreat. I gather Haile Selassie wasn't best pleased with his people for attacking us, but that's another story. I believe you had a standoff with the bandits at one stage, which you tried to resolve with a Mars bar. I should say, for the benefit of our North American listeners, Mars bars are kind of like Snickers. We were exploring a, a cave in a very narrow part of the um, northern gorges, and uh, we were in a rather exposed position on a beach with high cliffs above us when a group of tribesmen arrived and started shooting at us from the top of the cliff. And I thought there was some terrible mistake. So I ran out onto the beach. Fortuitously, I had a loud hailer with me. One always has a loud hailer. And I shouted out at them in the few words of Amharic that I knew, Tenasteling, Tenasteling, we come in peace. Would you like a Mars bar? Because we had a surfeit of Mars bars provided by the Mars company. 
and sponsorship. So we had Mars bars coming out of everywhere. But anyway, the leader of the opposition stopped the men firing, and then he bowed down, took his pith helmet off, that they all were there, and I took my pith helmet off, and we both bowed to each other. And then the wretched man put his rifle up and fired a shot which landed between my feet. So I decided at this point the only thing to do was to return fire and get out of there, which is what we did. And so that was really the Blue Nile, but it also led to a, another innovation. To get down this river, which no one had succeeded in doing, we needed a special type of boat. Well, we designed two boats. The first one was a type of Royal Engineer assault boat, which on a visit to Chatham, the Queen and Prince Philip saw. And Prince Philip got down on his knees and said, this isn't the way to get a boat to do this. I'll show you how to do it. So he took a lot of problems to tell us about the design of this particular boat. The Queen just smiled happily at it. And of course, the upper reaches, which were covered in rocks, were another matter altogether. But we reckoned that perhaps a rubber boat would get down that would bounce off the rocks. So I went to the Avon Company in South Wales, who made yachting tenders. And I said, do you think you could make a rubber boat that would bounce off these rocks? And they said, well, we've got a yachting tender. Why don't you take one and try it? And we took it up to a, a weir in mid-Wales at Lankoflin, and we tested it. And we bounced it off rocks and over a weir dozens of times, and we didn't puncture it. So this was to be the main white water boat, and we stuffed football bladders inside the main tubes through very large valves, so the thing was virtually unsinkable. And these boats managed to get through this incredibly difficult rapids and cataracts of the upper reaches. The assault boats got through the slightly easier reaches lower down. But when we went back, of course, all the publicity and all the magazines and film that came out Everyone realized that if you wanted to explore whitewater rivers, you could use a rubber boat. And so this started the industry, and Avon uh, sold an awful lot of boats as a result of that. That was the start of whitewater rafting. That was the start of whitewater rafting, yeah. Then I think you had a run-in with a big fish back in Britain. I was commanding the junior leaders regiment at Dover, which was a regiment of young soldiers. My sergeant major was a marvellous character who had been on the Blue Nile expedition with me. And he had a father, or an uncle, I think, who lived in a village called Ickham, which was not very far from Dover. He heard this story that a well-known goldfish breeder was losing his entire stock of prized goldfish because of some predator that was coming in, particularly at night and gobbling them up. And he was quite convinced that it was a Russian plot. The Russians had somehow infiltrated British waterways with some predatory fish, which was destroying Britain's stock of goldfish, and something should be done about it. Well, my regimental sergeant major was never one to miss an opportunity. So he came back to see me the next day, and he said, Sir, he said, there's this terrible tragedy going on up the road in Ickham. Do you know about it tonight? No, I don't. He said, well... Did you realise that the entire stock of British goldfish are going to be wiped out by some Soviet predator? So I said, well, what do you suggest, Simon? He said, well, I think so. it's our duty to go and get rid of it. He said, I'll do a reconnaissance if you allow it. So I said, yes, well, go off and have a look and come back and tell me what you think. And he came back a few days later and he said, well, I've been to the pond and it's quite a large pond and it has got some goldfish in, but there are not many left. And there's obviously been something pretty hungry in there because it, there were 3,000 goldfish 
not so long ago. And he said the police had been down because they thought it might be a poacher. We think that there is some sort of giant fish in there. Well, I said, that's a simple thing to do. Then You just put in a small charge of explosive, set it off. But I said, of course, the goldfish that are in there will be destroyed as well. He said, well, there aren't many left, and an elf can collect the goldfish and put them in a safe place while we set off a small controlled demolition. And I thought, well, it sounds quite a good idea. It's a way to liven up the boys' training. So I rang up the public relations officer at the Ministry of Defence, whom I knew, and told him about this. And he said, that's a splendid idea. I must go and talk to my boss. So he went off to see the brigadier, who thought, my God, that's what we need. Chose the army doing something useful for the local population. And uh, yes, tell uh, tell John Blasters now, get on with it. So um, we set up this exercise, and I left the sergeant major to run it. I went off on some other jaunt. But on the way back in my staff car, I called in at uh, Alf Leggett's farm to see how it was going. And to my surprise, the entire drive was packed with parked cars labelled press. And obviously, this public relations officer in London had run away with it and uh, had alerted most of the press corps of Britain to this act of saving the British goldfish. Anyway, on the lawn of the rather nice sort of old manor house farm he had was an armoured car which had already cast deep ruts in this priceless lawn with its machine gun poking over the hedge towards the pond. There were several junior soldiers clad in their frogman's outfits standing nearby. The sergeant major was running out cables from a demolition charge in the water and on the bank overlooking the pond were about 30 or 40 cameramen and journalists. Alf Leggett, the um, owner of the pond, came over and uh, I said, do you object to this at all? I mean, it's your pond that we might do some damage. Oh, no, no, he said, I don't mind at all. He said, we've had a terrible time with this predator. And he said, in fact, only the other night, it nearly cost the life of a local police officer. I said, really? How was that? He said, well, we were both sitting up in that tree, which was on a little island in the pond, with shotguns, watching for the predator. And the policeman fell asleep and fell off the branch. And he fell into the pond and he might have drowned. And we managed to get him out. I said, all right. And without a nod, I said to the sergeant major, OK, give the order to fire. And there was an enormous sort of thump, as you get from an underwater explosion. And a geyser of water rose about 100 feet into the air, <laughs> accompanied by a few goldfish and various bits of weed and rubbish from the pond. I'm happy to say that the wind had changed at that moment. So most of it fell on top of the assembled press, who were now drenched to the skin and not looking very happy at all. At that point, Alf Lake had said, what now? And I said, well, it's going to take several hours for the water to calm down. And once visibility has returned, we can put the frogmen back in and they can search and try and find the carcass of your predator. The press were very disappointed about that because they obviously thought that we were going to produce this dead thing in front of them. And I said, no, no, you'll have to come back tomorrow. So they all sloped off. But Alf Leggett also ran a care home and he wasn't going to miss this opportunity for some publicity. So he said to the press, I've got some champagne up there. Well, of course, they all turned back immediately. As we strode across the lawn back to the manor house, there was an old lady sitting in a chair who was clearly very deaf. 
And she leaned over towards Alfred and said, Mr. Leggett, I seem to remember uh, that I heard a bang just now. Yes, dear, he said. Oh, she said, what is it? And he said, well, it's an atom bomb they've dropped on London. Oh, he said, well, that mean I won't get my paper in the morning. So anyway, in we went to the farmhouse, which was now packed with the assembled press downing Alf Leggett's champagne. And the telephone rang, and a voice said, uh, could I speak to Mr. Spencer? He was the public relations man. So I passed it over to the MOD public relations man, and I saw him nodding and saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, of course, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. So I realized he was clearly talking to someone fairly senior. And when he came away from the telephone, he said to me, we've got a bit of trouble. I said, really, what's that? He said, well, did you realize that the president of the United States is arriving at Heathrow this morning? I said, no, I don't know him well, but uh, what's that to do with us? He said, well, you see, the main story which the government had decided to put out was going to be about the arrival of this great man. But as it happens, they then happened to pick up that you were going to blow up this fish. And all the newspapers they got onto to cover the arrival of the President of the United States had said they were off to Ickham to film this. And that has upset one or two people in Whitehall. So the, the brigadier has said, we've got to call the whole thing off. <laughs> so I said, well, it's a bit late. He said, well, I tried to explain that to him. But he doesn't see the point of me. <laughs> he just said, he just kept shouting, stop it, stop it, call it off. <laughs> and of course, next morning, the headlines were about the, the predator being wiped out. But of course, we had no predator at this stage. So the, the story continued for several days, during which time the sergeant major got the frogman back into the pond and they fiddled around, couldn't find a single thing, nothing. And then the fishery department came down from Canterbury and they had an electric fishing device. And with this, they managed to discover a rather stunned giant carp that was actually buried in the bank and was not in a good shape at all. So they lifted this thing out into a tank of water and took it off to the reservoir outside Canterbury, where to the best of my knowledge, it is to this day. So there was a giant carp, and it probably had eaten all the goldfish, but I can't say that it was actually a Russian invention. Isn't there a story about you taking Beethoven on an expedition to a remote jungle village in South America? A friend of mine called General Joe Singh had been a cadet when I was teaching at Santos, and he was from Guyana. And later in life, when he'd risen in rank a bit, I met him in London, and he said... The defense of Guyana is very difficult because much of it's under dense jungle and we're having problems with intruders coming in from Brazil. And I'm very dependent on a tribe called the Waiwai, who live in the south of the country, for warning me about these Brazilians coming over the border. And he said, I have to leave a a permanent radio station up there with a one-eyed lance corporal listening out for messages to send them back to me. And he said, you see... I don't pay them anything, but I try and do a few favours for them. And they've recently been infected with malaria and dental problems. What they would like is some sort of medical help. So would you, and I say would you, would the Scientific Exploration Society, which I was now chairman of, would they um, like to undertake an expedition with the medical side to help the YY? So we did. 
And we took in dentists and doctors and the YY, who were fairly primitive, but very nice people, who spoke a sort of quaint Victorian form of English. And they uh, entertained us, and uh, we went to their church services. They were rather evangelical. And uh, on the last day we were there, having pulled out most of their teeth, we um, were talking to the high priest, and he said, you know, when you come back, which I'm sure you will, would you do us a favor? Well, I said, what do you want? He said, well, what we need is a grand piano. I said, a grand piano? Yes, he said. I said, have you ever seen one? He said, I've seen a picture of one. He said, you see, the young people here are tempted by the stories of sinful life on the coast and all the nightclubs and disco bars and all this sort of thing. And with their young warriors, they have no trade to offer. They'll get, get in trouble if they end up there. But they're very musical. And what they need is something musical to really focus their attention on. At the moment, they've got drums and flutes and sort of violin-type things. But a grand piano would change their life. Well, these taps were 350 miles in dense jungle over an uncharted piece of South America. I said, well, I make no promise, but we'll see what we can do. And I returned to England. I was giving a presentation in the Millennium Hotel at West London. I was talking about the Waiwai tribe and particularly trying to get people to invest in some of their handicrafts, which unfortunately were largely made out of endangered species. So that wasn't very helpful. But at the end of my talk, I said, and what they really want is a grand piano. And to my horror, the uh, general manager of the hotel said, I will give you a grand piano. And there was an airline there called Biwi who fly across the Atlantic to the West Indies. And they said, we will fly it as far as Guyana. So the press again took up the story. I was then fostered with the problem of recruiting a team. So I got on to my friends at the Royal Engineers. I found a doctor who could play and tune a piano. I found various others to form the team. And we had the piano tropicalized and duly flown out by Biwi. When it got to Guyana, we made a wooden sledge out of mahogany, and then we had to fly it in a much smaller plane, a little thing called a sky van, as far as the nearest missionary strip to the YY village. And we'd arranged with the YY by people carrying messages in forked sticks that they would meet us with a 100 or so warriors to carry this grand piano, which weighed about 800 pounds, to their village, which was a distance of about 10 kilometers uh, through jungle. And my main assistant, another former sergeant major in the Royal Engineers, had a look at the ground and he said, you're never going to get a grand piano through that. It's full of ravines and swamp and so on. He said, I'll go and look for an alternative route. So he went down to the river and he found a, a very large canoe and said, you know, I think if we could get this piano into the canoe, we could actually take it up river. There's only one problem. There's a set of rapids, and we've got to go up against the rapids. Anyway, by now, I was waiting for the 100 warriors to come and carry the piano, and six had turned up, and two of those were under 15. So we, the whiteys, had to drag this piano over the savannah into the jungle, build a few small bridges, get it across the ravines, and we finally got to the bank of the Essequibo River, just below the rapid. This huge dugout canoe was produced. 
we loaded in the piano, which was in a large box. We'd taken the legs off it. And we had a little outboard motor that the Indians owned, which was about an eight horsepower. Not really ideal for getting an 800-pound piano up a rapid. But the, the Indians seemed confident, and they decided to take a run at it, by which time most of the children in the village had jumped in the canoe as well, so that didn't help. And we set off. Halfway up, we almost stalled. We were literally hovering, the engine going full blast. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. We're not. And then, ooh, we suddenly got through the rapid and out the other side. I must admit, it was a very close one thing. And we then tried to get uh, through the jungle up to the top of a hill where the new village was. And unfortunately, there were other problems in getting up. But we did finally get to the foot of this hill. And there were the 100 warriors. I said, I thought you were meant to come to the airstrip. Oh, no, we didn't think you'd ever come. But they then carried the grand piano up the hill, and we sang our Royal Engineers' marching song as we went up. And when we got to the top, we took it out of its box, put the legs back on, and although it had made a few loud bongs as we'd been carrying it, it was complete, and it worked. And the doctor sat beside it and played a few tunes, and in the two weeks we were with them, we taught the young people to play the piano and it became a huge success. The BBC did a recording of it over a satellite phone. People couldn't believe this thing was sitting in a jungle clearing in the middle of South America. But two years later, we had a message from the tribe saying, we need the piano tune. So we went out with a new expedition consisting of three adventurous piano tuners, and we tuned it. And finally, we got it playing again. There are more stories about that. But the one good thing that came about it was when the film that the BBC made of this called The Grand Adventure, which is still on YouTube, when the film came out, an American charity saw this and decided that they would help this tribe. And so they subscribed $2 million, which enabled the tribe to turn their tribal area into a protected zone and protect the trees, the animals, the plants, and keep out the intruders and the gold diggers and so on. And so good word came of it. And we did several other expeditions with the YY and have remained friends with them ever since. What an amazing story. So, John, you've written 16 books, I think. Is that right? Well, I'm working on the 16th at the moment. Have you got big plans for the future? Well, depending on COVID, as everything else, we're supposed to be going to Mongolia at the end of August, God willing. Dozens of people want to go, but of course, it's all going to depend on whether we can travel. And after that, we've got another one in Bolivia, which is scheduled for the end of November. And after that, we've got one scheduled for Nepal for next year. But it, as I say, it all depends on the COVID problem. Can I be very rude and just ask you how old you are? 84. You've led a remarkable life and a lot more of it to come, I hope. <laughs> well, we stagger on. <laughs> how can people find out more about you and your expeditions? Well, there's my website, if you look up John Blasford Snell, um, and also the Scientific Exploration Society. The Scientific Exploration Society, we founded after the Blue Nile and is still going strong and has members all over the world. And that has its own website. And I have my own website, and obviously the two are linked. I'm no longer the chairman of the society. I'm just the president. So I don't have to go to all the meetings. So the website address is? www.johnblasfordsnell, all one word dot org dot uk 
Colonel John Blatford Snell, thank you very much indeed for appearing on the show. And we hope you'll come back and tell us some more stories in the near future. Good luck with both of you and keep up the good work. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com, or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. And I am you. You are me. It's just a crazy storm.